0: In the basket. Good news is your dates are here. Bad news. He was torn apart! Get off his head, like a button ginger burning man. The wages of sin is gonorrhea, syphilis, and
1: death. I'm the Lord of the Harvest. Yeah, you know how much blood jets out of a guy's neck when his throat's missing? It's shut up!
2: To Don't Open This Podcast. I am your host, Mike, joined by my other host. Tim. And I have to say, we've sort of missed you guys, and we've missed doing this. Because what did we do, Tim? We did something weird.
3: Yeah, we, we ended Halloween with Halloween ends, and we gave it to you a little bit early, so you didn't have anything in the front half of November, but it's... It was weird. It was weird. It was a good
2: feeling. We got a lot of feedback. People were, like, excited. A few people thought we were now weekly, and I had to squelch. I'm like, no, that that is not the case. We just couldn't listen to more people ask if we were going to cover Halloween ends. So it was like, here it is. Yeah. Three days later.
3: And plus, it'd be weird to not do it. Like, we had the opportunity to do it on Halloween, so. It was
2: too good. Yeah. So we're back with something that we have not covered a TV show yet. And uh, I know that when I look through streaming sites and I see anthology shows, I sometimes get curious, my, my curiosity is piqued, and I hop in there and I start watching an episode, and I want to love it, and it's not good. And then I, I watch a couple more, and they're not good either. So I just turn it off. And Tim and myself were talking about something that one of the, the big names in, in fantastic cinema was behind, and that would be? That would be Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. It's on Netflix.
4: Cabinet of Curiosities is a show that I've always wanted to make. And this anthology, we gave ownership of each episode to the directors.
0: Action.
4: Each of the episodes has a whole world. They present you with different delights. Some are savory, some are sweet. You get a surprise from each of the bites. We wanted to create beautiful, practical creatures. With all the artistry that goes into creating a great monster. We achieved some of the most remarkable images in the series. With Cabinet of Curiosities, what I'm trying to say is, look, the world is beautiful and horrible at exactly the same time.
3: You can, you can watch it right now. You can stop this episode and go watch all eight episodes of that and then come back if you haven't seen them.
2: Yeah, you might want to do that because we have been talking before the show about how we're going to talk about eight episodes of kind of Twilight Zone ish sort of uh, storylines. And we weren't sure if we should spoil anything or spoil nothing. Tim brought up the point that if we never spoiled anything, we would kind of just be giving a brief synopsis. So we decided on something a little odd. We're going to talk about the stories. We're going to highlight elements that we think are really cool. We will give us a few uh, tangential spoilers, but nothing major. So the big reveals, the big twists, none of those will be covered. If you want to go in totally blind, watch it first, Mm -hmm. then come back. But if you know that you can handle knowing a little bit, it's as if you're reading the back of a video box to get an idea of what every episode's
3: about. I mean, I think that's our show in a nutshell. That that is our show in a nutshell. (laughs) It's you walking around the pit in the middle of a blockbuster reading the back of every horror VHS.
2: It's our show in a clamshell, which uh, (laughs) older viewers will know what that is. Um, But yeah, so there's eight episodes, and uh, I guess we're going to go through each one in the order they came out. Mm -hmm. And then we also decided that We'll kind of give you our loose ranking of what we thought each episode where it landed. And then after a little pause and a major spoiler warning, we're probably going to talk about a couple of the endings that blew us away. It'll most likely be the top three or four episodes that we ranked really high
3: up. This way it's a little something for everybody of ideally, we appreciated the show. It's the great thing about anthologies is you have all of these different types of stories, different styles of stories that if one doesn't vibe with you, another one might. So it's nice to have the opportunity of introducing this to people, hopefully get you enticed a little bit to go watch it. Hopefully, if enough people watch it, we get a season two. But then also, for any of the people who have already seen it, you can stick around to the back end, and this way you get to hear a little bit more discussion on that as well. So hopefully, for fans new and old of Guillermo del Toro's new show, we can cover something for everyone.
2: And considering our show likes to educate as well, I feel like a lot of hardcore fans of horror and sci-fi may know Guillermo del Toro very well. I mean, it, it's a good yeah. good bet. But for anyone who doesn't know who this man's face is, who he is. Yeah, he made Pinocchio. Uh, it's, it's, you have to go there. <laughs> I haven't seen it. so I, I. I, um, But no, Guillermo or Guillermo, however you want to pronounce it, I think both are acceptable. He is a director of the highest caliber that has given viewers everything from the original two Hellboy movies, the more recent Oscar-winning Shape of Water, Mm -hmm. Pan's Labyrinth, which seems to smash almost every boundary, and it seems like anyone that's seen that movie thinks it's great. Mm -hmm. It is great. I have to say that my experience with him is very heartfelt, because I went to the Art Institute of Philadelphia, I went in the early to mid nineties and while I was there, I was lucky enough to be hired as a projectionist I actually learned the art of projection on old school cameras, which was really cool. And I screwed up a lot of my earliest attempts, but one of the movies, this was a little art house theater called the Roxy on Samson street. It was actually owned by the producer of a clockwork orange, which blew my mind when I met him not knowing that he was the producer of Clockwork Orange. It was like, holy shit, that's my boss? That's awesome. But one of the movies that I got to project was a film called Kronos, and I had never heard of Guillermo del Toro. I had no idea who he was. Uh, That was one of his earlier Spanish-language films, and I fell in love with his aesthetic and the film itself. It's a great movie, and I just sort of always kept him on my radar since then. And I'm sure Tim has a few favorites of his. Oh,
3: yeah. I mean, I'll always be a sucker for Hellboy, but still like Devil's Backbone is another one that you showed me back in the day. But I think I love all of his work for the fact that he has this kind of two minds about him of horror, but still dipping into the fantastic. And I know a lot of times we have horror or fantasy. And he's really the person that I have in my head of like, he knows how to blend those together. I don't really know originally, like Pan's Labyrinth. It's a bit of everything in there. You want like a historical thriller drama. Do you want like a bit of fantasy horror? Do you want some of the actual kind of fantastic uh, elves and woodland creatures kind of deal? It's everything is in there. And I think
2: sweet drama. That can immediately turn to an evil bastard beating someone with a gun, and you're just like, "What? How is this in the same movie?"
3: Which I think the my first introduction to all what was the
2: first movie you saw
3: was Pan's Labyrinth because uh, that came out originally when I think I was um, just starting high school, and the case was I had seen the trailer and I said, "Oh, this looks really cool, like all of this these fantasy elements," and I don't recall the trailer ever showing that it's
0: like 6040. 40. Also.
3: Well yeah like yeah. it's a lot of more of like the the war stuff a lot more of like the the father and everything the first time I saw it I didn't like the movie because I felt hoodwinked of I was expecting to be able to just do some escapism into the fantastic and then I spent most of the time dealing with the the real world drama and then over time I reassessed it a couple of years later and I had watched it and said after you get past the whole thing of like the marketing department hoodwinked me the rest of I love the movie. It's a great movie.
2: Yeah. Uh, few directors every once in a while, we'll mention the term like visionary director or auteur, that sort of thing. Guillermo is a, a modern master in, in my opinion, few films are as rich and dedicated. Like when you watch anything this man makes, it doesn't matter if it's like high end del Toro or maybe like in the middle he doesn't make bad movies. I mean, he, he was tapped to direct blade two and there are definitely corny ass moments in blade two that are inherent to the source that he had to work from. But the fucking movie is the coolest looking blade of, of all of them, like hands down. And he sort of has his own little, um, this, this area he works within. He loves old wood and organic things like, like aged things He's very much into curios, hence the curiosities. Um, he loves things in jars, like insects and, and part, you know, body parts, or in the case of Devil's Backbone, a, an infant. Yeah. Um, but he's obsessed with certain things, and they, these motifs come back into his films. And over the decades, um, I, we're going to do a deep dive on him as a director. Just oh, Because we can list off his movies. They're all movies you should see. On a personal level, there's that aspect of meeting your heroes, and I don't think I wanted any director to be awesome in real life more than Guillermo del Toro, and through my very good friend Moses Jane, I ended up in a situation where I got to meet and spend some real time with Guillermo del Toro at the cast and crew premiere of Hellboy 2. Mm
1: -hmm. It
2: is a night I will never forget, and... Moses and I were not talking to him in a little meet and greet. We were literally hanging out with him for quite a duration with Mike Mignola, who's the creator of Hellboy. <laughs> I'm telling everyone listening, this is not bragging. Like it was surreal. I'll never forget it. It was mind-blowingly awesome. I owe Moses many steak dinners for for <laughs> taking me along with that. But the the end result, the important part of my dumb story is that Guillermo del Toro is as humble and wonderful and real as you would ever want him to be. When you see him in an interview, that's not an act. The dude loves art. He loves cinema. He's an amazing artist outside of cinema. He can draw, he can paint, he can sculpt. He adores the entire canvas of all of the people that make up the art world. He really does. And if you ever run into that dude, he will stop and hang and talk. Like he's not. Gonna brush you off. He he really appreciates everything. I look at it as he's a fan who's super talented that managed to to make it. And with you know, that that's why I'm stoked to talk about this series, but
3: yeah. And I mean, honestly, it warms my heart to hear that of he is exactly as you would expect. It's not It's hilarious, too. Yeah. Which I think that's the the best thing, and especially it shows with a lot of this of he approaches everything and it's not like a director for hire of, yep, I'm here to do my job so I can go home, or I'm here because, hey, I'm getting a paycheck. The studio asked me to work on this next movie. Everything about him is a lot of very passion project items. It's a lot of things that it's because, well, I grew up on this and I really loved it. I loved Creature from the Black Lagoon. I want to do a a variation on that, where all of these different ideas that I think really ends up his personality shines through in the movies. It does. So I'll be very excited when we get to doing a director deep dive on him later. That'll be a fun one.
2: And the reason that we're talking about him at length before we get to the show is because we want all of you to know like that is the slight backstory to a really cool dude who put he definitely put his name and, and the pedigree of his filmmaking. Mm-hmm behind getting this, sh- this series made. And the two things that everyone will notice when they watch the show is that every director he brought in was most likely given a psychotic amount of freedom. You could You could feel it, and yeah. I'm pretty sure just knowing him, that was part of him slapping his name above it because it's him giving directors he admires a chance to make an hour-long cool story. And the other interesting thing is that unlike any anthology show I've ever seen, he will pull a little sculpture of the director of each episode and introduce it with the director's name. And I think that's a really personal touch. He's trying to shine a real spotlight on these names. So that's a cool thing.
3: Which is really nice that it's, if he gets the opportunity to kind of create his own team or kind of put these people in place, he uses it to kind of give a better voice to a lot of these directors, which I know a lot of them have done other famous things or other other famous works, like we've had um, other ones like The Babadook or we've had other ones like uh, the director of Twilight and all of these other movies. But it's not necessarily something of they are a Hollywood director of, yeah, they just have projects flowing in. It's They've done some really interesting work. Uh, We have Panos Cosmatos doing... Um, One of the ones that we're going to be talking about tonight. And he did a couple movies that are really terrific, but I would never really consider him as the, the one whose phone is ringing from Hollywood of, we want you on the next Marvel movie. So it's great that he's able to still get some um, introduction to people that might not otherwise be aware of his work through doing this Netflix show with Del Toro. And when
2: you consider Later in his career, the amount of fanfare he's gotten because there've mm-hmm. been people like us that always loved him. Yeah, but he kind of had a bit of a Peter Jackson kind of deal where, like, later in his career, all these critics were just blown away by his work. People that didn't notice him before, the 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 humbleness of him to slap his name on this, but not cherry pick the two or three best episodes to direct. I mean, he's Guillermo del Toro. He could have easily worked into the contract that he's directing like a couple of the episodes. Yeah. He really didn't. I think he might have written one of the stories.
3: I think he wrote I'm pretty the Murmuring. Sure. Okay. Um. I know there was a lot of talk online that I was... You're
2: going to hurt my heart talking I about this. It I know. I was so excited. Uh, tell him the story yeah. so you
3: could be sad with us. So there was talk online of how there was supposed to be... So the release schedule for this was they ended up releasing like two episodes. Um, I think it was like Every day for leading up to Halloween or leading but, up to But it never Halloween. went to Halloween. Yeah. So we had two episodes a day, and then there was talk on how, oh, after the last episode, there's another secret surprise episode that's going to be directed by Del Toro.
2: And one project that Del Toro has been trying to make
3: yep. for 20 years. So everyone thought it was going to be at the Mountains of Madness. Which would have been amazing. It would have been amazing, because <laughs> then it would have been like, oh, a lot of this show, like a lot of Lovecraftian leanings. That's got to be the secret last episode. It was so sad when there was nothing. And then there was nothing and it it breaks our heart. Not
2: even a... I would have been happy if it was just one episode, like an individual unique story. It didn't have to be that story. I would have loved to see him doing a little short to throw in there, but that didn't happen. So maybe season season two? two. Yes. So we have eight episodes to crack into, an eight pack of curious oddities. So the first episode was
3: Lot 36. So Lot 36, I think it's, it's odd because you can't really say it sets the tone for the, the season because in anthology, you don't really have a tone setter. It's kind of all over the place. Um, sometimes you might be able to get an idea of what you can expect, but I think because all of the stories are so radically unique and all of them kind of do their own thing, that it's not okay. If I watch Lot Thirty Six, and if I love it or hate it, I know what to expect for the next episode. It it doesn't match up to anything. It's a um, Russian
2: roulette wheel. A Russian roulette wheel. It's a I don't know, that sounds like a deadly <laughs> a deadly uh, where they put a billet like, and spit yeah, it. Like, um, I'd like to see someone. Well, anyway, it's a roulette wheel
3: of styles. <laughs> exactly. Um, so this is Tim Blake Nelson playing a very uh, unlikable gentleman who is definitely in league with loan sharks, or he's kind of indebted to loan sharks. And he's doing this whole, it's its almost like a, a haunted storage wars episode. Um, I couldn't, I mean, we could, neither of us, I think
2: anyone that watches the show, you will not be able to get storage wars out of your mind if you've ever yeah. seen storage wars, because it takes place at a storage facility.
3: Yeah, so he's making money to pay off his debts um, by flipping uh, storage containers that he's going to the storage place and he auctions and then he ransacks it and sells off all the stuff. and It's, it's
2: kind of a down-and-out veteran. They, they definitely yeah. work that in there.
3: So it's... He's clearly had some issues with... I wouldn't even say specifically um, that he's racist, but he's just kind of a very mean, cantankerous person overall because... Everyone he's mean to Um, some more than others.
2: They establish that he is an angry person with he He not a sense of entitlement. It's more so that because he served and because he's maybe done a lot in his younger years, he sort of demands that he, he thinks that he deserves a lot more than he's getting right now. That's what I took from it because one of probably his only friend, is a black gentleman that works at the storage place who's yeah. actually quite nice to him they established that that Tim Blake Nelson's character listens to a steady diet of conservative radio like hi- highly conservative radio yeah. and you could almost see that the director kind of shows you he's almost starting to parrot and mimic and and like thumbs up what the guy's saying on the radio station. So it's like maybe that day he had a particular hair up his ass about that thing that the guy on the radio was talking about, Yeah, which leads to his first interaction with another person. Cause it opens with him in his truck. I think he's just driving around and he goes to the storage
3: place. Yeah. Cause as far as the first storage room that he goes in and he places the auction for, and he wins, he ends up going back outside with, uh, another woman that ends up arriving and she ends up saying that she's looking for the things of her uh, I think it was her husband that passed or that were in another storage container that he now owns
2: and the mistake that she has a conversation with the storage manager there was a mistake where she had contacted him and talked to him mm-hmm. about I she be paying him the following month for like both months yeah. he said okay but then it slipped his mind and so they foreclosed, she changed her number, yeah, they I think happened, get in touch so they her. tried calling her. <clears throat> so it's basically an innocent old lady who's trying to get some family photos back, and this curmudgeonly bastard does not, Yeah, he doesn't even bend for her.
3: It's just, he insults uh, it's mine now, it's my stuff, any of the stuff I probably already got rid of or ransacked through it, so you can't even go take a look, don't worry about it. Uh, and it kind of sets in place a couple things of, Well, now you have an enemy. (laughs) But also, it kind of really cements the fact that there is no kind of nice side to this guy, for the most part. Um, At best, it's maybe begrudging, uh, (laughs) not even respect, just begrudgment to uh, the other auctioneer uh, storage owner, but nobody else.
2: And I think, especially because it's the first episode, I would have to say like 10 or 15 minutes into this, a couple things hit me that I was happy about. The quality of the acting like made me happy. I mean, Tim Blake Nelson's awesome. Oh, yeah. I don't know the name of the gentleman that plays opposite him, but he was super good. Um, so the acting's good. The, the production design looked beyond what I expected. It was like movie quality production design yeah. and the vibe of it. But once again, just this episode, because I didn't know what the vibe of the next episode would be. This episode had the feeling of an old, um, like, British amicus films anthology, yeah. like Tales from the Crypt or Vault of Horror. It also had that, like, we've mentioned EC Comics before. They're the comic company that put out Tales from the Crypt and the Vault of Horror and all these things. So there were movie versions of those comics, and they were morality plays. This had that feeling, yeah, you know, was it was like, very... I'm like, this guy's a jerk
3: and something's going to happen to him. Yeah. So. So, while he's ransacking this new storage container that he ends up getting, he ends up finding, um, I believe it was like uh, two books that were yeah. in there, kind of hidden inside a table, and then he finds another one, so he brings it to his fence that he has, who's into all of these kind of more occulty, unique-type yeah. things, and they call in another guy to say, you might be interested in this, he found two of the books. Yeah. There's so there's the all this leveling missing. up of like, yeah. here
2: comes the more mysterious expert, followed, layered again by the even more mysterious expert.
1: Yeah,
2: um, you so, know he's got
1: something.
3: So now we've moved from storage wars into pawn store.
2: <laughs> <laughs> this is very true. There are similarities to to both of those. So it's like Lovecraft pawn shop is definitely actually. How
3: it felt, you know, I would watch it.
2: I would watch it too. <laughs> I found this idol. <laughs> um. But yeah, so far so good. I mean, I was down with it. There's, there are a couple little things that felt maybe a little, um, I don't know what the right word would be. A couple of things felt sort of forced, but then I was like, you know what? It's only like 45 minutes probably. Yeah. Because then they, they shoehorn in like a, you see an old man who dies. There's an old man that dies and you don't know what he's doing. He was like. Cutting up something in close up, oh, but you yes. don't get to see what it is. So they're really trying to give us what maybe would work best in a feature-length film. So I was like, "All right, I'll I'll accept these little tidbits. I hope they're going somewhere." And and they are. They 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 merge. They take a little while to to merge.
3: Yeah, I think the the biggest thing with Lot Thirty Six that it suffers from is too much front end setup that then when things kind of really start rolling, you have like six minutes left to the episode.
2: It is pushed way into the yeah. end. I don't mind like the the end third, but this is like right
3: at the end. Yeah. So I think overall I I enjoyed it. It definitely had me interested to see the rest of the, the series just because I figure even if content-wise I don't know what to expect for like tonally, yeah. I can at least expect the same level of Uh, workmanship put into it, or at least the same level of uh, professionalism in the shoot. So looking at Lot 36, I figure, okay, regardless of the writing the storyline-wise or anything like that, I think I'm in good hands overall for the series.
2: It it felt like a really solid hors d'oeuvre because the performances are good, the story is serviceable, it's not like a mind-blowing narrative, but for people that like Lovecraftian creatures and conjuring and witchcrafty dark themes there's a there there's good stuff it's just maybe a day late and a dollar short in the amount yeah um and the ending is is something that again we're not going to spoil it's it's not it's not the deepest of endings it's more of a oh kind of ending (laughs) like you know it's a very easy comic yeah and it's cool like it's no big deal i actually when this first opened and i saw the title Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but my dumb brain went to the Arthur Conan Doyle story that is also a lot number oh, from, from, um, from Tales, Tales from, from the, the Dark, dark side. side. I actually thought I was going to be watching a remake, like like a new version. Yeah. I totally did. Like, I crossed the actually, numbers. And I, I would have, I would have preferred to have seen, that, to be
3: honest. That like, would have been really cool to see, like, a modern yeah. horror mummy take. Yeah. That I watched like a, this
2: with Aaron, and I actually, like, nudged her, and I was like, this is the one with the mummy. And then I was like, oh, this is not the one with the mummy. There's no mummy in this. So
3: um. <laughs> so we didn't even talk about the, the. so the director coming out of the gate on this one. Oh yeah, Mr. One. Navarro. Yep. Uh, so Guillermo Navarro, who didn't have a lot of directing credits in terms of movies to his name. I did know he did TV, um, but his kind of biggest, uh, I would say claim to fame, was that he's the continued cinematographer for all of Del Toro's works for the most part. Um, So I think he actually, he might have, I think he won the Academy Award for Shape of Water. I think he did. that's Um, him But yeah, it's really interesting coming into this of seeing, hey, you've worked with me on all of these things. You know what? Here, show me a story. Do something for this new show we're working on. And it's interesting to always see people take kind of a director chair or kind of come forward on projects when they're known specifically for other things of, Oh, it's, oh, a special effects guy is now all of a sudden going to direct. Oh, it's a cinematographer. Now but going I feel to
2: cinematographers are probably, in my opinion, one of the most unsung facets of filmmaking. Oh, yeah. Because if you're a cinematographer who's good with people, you'd probably be a fucking amazing director. Like, it's, a yeah. lot of cinematographers bring way more vision than some of these, like, half-assed directors actually have. And the cinematographer can make you look so much better than you are. If a cinematographer says, what if we block and move the camera this way and push in on this character? And the director goes, sure. Didn't the cinematographer kind of sort of almost direct that scene. So Tim, I hear that you want to be on star such (laughs) (laughs) for anyone that listens to our show. We, we love graveyard shift. That's not what this is
3: but it's Graveyard Rats. It's pretty damn close, so. I mean, I think this is the maybe the prequel to Graveyard Shift, a couple generations removed.
2: The beginning and middle of this episode is so close to Stephen King's short story, Graveyard Shift, that I actually thought it was the adaptation of Graveyard Shift, the short story. (laughs) It isn't. It's its own thing. But I found it highly, highly enjoyable. I really liked this one.
3: Yeah, so this was one that I found very interesting because it it kind of leaned into almost the dark comedy a bit in this one that we didn't have necessarily in the, the first one, but how did you like the kind of escalation of? (laughs) I'm a sucker
2: for like, I don't know, things that creep you out when, when directors try to get under someone's skin, I appreciate when they try to do that. that. That impresses me. I'm like, You're going to give me like a gross out show. I love period pieces. I I actually think that David Hewlett, he's the the lead actor in this. Mm -hmm. I always love this dude because he played the character Worth in the Canadian film Cube. And I think that Cube is an awesome story with across the board poor acting. The acting is all like theater quality, except the dude that plays Worth. And I don't really know him from anything else. I know him from Cube. And the moment I saw his face, I'm like, that's the dude from Cube. So I was kind of excited about that. This one just has fun. This is like a fun monster movie.
3: Yeah. it And it's, it's super entertaining. And it, it kind of comes at you from all sides of like, so the whole thing is uh, these grave robbers are going through this cemetery and they're trying to get in and steal from uh, one of these corpses. And then the guard or whatever of the cemetery stops them and turns them away. And then you find out he turns them away because he's going to steal from the body now that the other guys did all the work of digging it up. But unfortunately, all of the, the goods, the bodies, all of these things are being first found by the rats and pulled underground or kind of ransacked yeah. themselves. And it's this ongoing frustration of, ah, these rats in this graveyard uh, that <laughs> it... It escalates from and, there. It, it
2: escalates a lot. Um, and I like that it has kind of a classy Robert Louis Stevenson, like the body snatcher kind of vibe. Yeah. And, but then it gets like a little more um, gory and, and monstrous, like pretty quick. Oh, yeah. There's actually a, a moment. We, we should, well, we'll kind of mention it throughout the whole show. The special effects in this series are awesome. Oh, yeah. Um, they tapped as many practical effects geniuses as they could find. And a lot of them sort of teamed up in different ways. Almost in an old the heyday of horror, like the 80s horror boom, the films were asking so much of the effects groups that sometimes you would have paired up people, like in the Phantasm movies, two different guys would like would would join up and do the tall man stuff. And then a couple other guys would do the dwarf creatures. And in this they did the same thing where they would team up different groups of people. And a gentleman that I know named Mike Hill, he is a stunningly talented sculptor and effects guy. He actually created the corpse that attacks the character uh, in these caverns underneath the, the cemetery. And a fun fact is that according to Mike, it is not a zombie. It is a living corpse. Very different thing to him. And I get it. I get what he means. And this living corpse is scary as shit. It really, yeah. I was like,
3: wow, that's scary. I'm scared. Well, uh, it, it was great. It goes for the whole escalation of, like, it's, I think back to the first time I saw The Descent. Um, I was, we used to do kind of an annual sleepover of all my buddies. And we said, oh, this new movie, The Descent, let's check it out. And you watch it and you say, oh, well, this is kind of creepy. Them going into this cave before you even know there's something else in that cave. And it just escalates of, well, that was creepy before, but now it's really creepy. Graveyard Rats does that same yeah. thing of, oh, there's all these rats in here. Oh, there's a huge rat in yeah. here. Oh, there's something else it's, in it's here. It's not even that, it's more. It,
2: yeah. Again, we're trying, I don't know. We we spoiled bits of it, but we're not giving you like the end result. I will say the end of this one is is a pretty harrowing uh, situation to, yeah. to, to be in. It freaked me out in a good way. I was like, that's good. They got my stomach like a little a little yeah. off, you know?
3: And again, yeah, this that, one's about reminds joke. me a bit of a Tales from the Dark Side as well.
2: There's, um, I I have to say that Graveyard Rats isn't the most original. It pulls. Oh, but it's fun. It, yeah, it pulls from <laughs> a lot of other things you've seen, but it does it in a really um, bombastic way, where it throws caution to the wind. Um, anyone who does not like rodents and confined spaces and things like that, you're screwed. You're gonna be you're gonna be very uncomfortable watching this one. Um, uh, and oddly enough,
3: the director. I just found something one. out just yeah. now. <laughs> so that probably makes sense why the actor what you remember yeah, him from Cube. the Worth guy. Yeah, Cause, he's uh, in
2: Cube, and Cube's directed by the same guy.
3: Yeah, Vigenzo Holy... Natale, uh, also known for Cube, worked on. Uh, is the one who did the the direction for Graveyard Rats, um, as well as a number of other things like the uh, In the Tall Grass that was on Netflix. Uh, a couple years back, Splice. He made
2: Splice as well. Yeah. I guess he's he's good with uh, constrained, tight spaces and small budgets. Because I think Cube is really well-directed. Yeah. I just wish that he was able to get a caliber of actor across the board where everyone was great. Because yeah. the great people in it are really good. But then there's some... You know, it's still worth watching. Uh, seek out Cube.
3: Yeah, I would agree.
2: Uh, in the Tall Grass, ah, uh, watched it and... Man, there's a lot of filler in that movie. It had me, and then it yeah. lost me, and then I wanted to
3: have be. I wanted it to have me again, and it it, it kind of shit the bed for me. But if it's if you, all right, if you want a better in the tall grass, I would say if you know Love, Death, Robots, also on Netflix. I think in season two there is an episode called "In the Tall Grass." Nothing to do with this exact storyline. Better than this movie, but it it has another thing of something going on out in kind of like the cornfield or out in the tall grass. And I think it, it's for 14 minutes. Uh, that one's worth your time. I'll get into love death robots a whole nother time though.
2: Yeah. We planned on um, veering off topic for each and every episode into a different anthology thing that has nothing to do with this before reeling ourselves back <laughs> in. We're actually I- going to try not to do that. But it'll happen two more times, I'm thinking. I I can talk for
3: days on Love, Death, Robots.
2: It's great. If you have Netflix, watch that shit immediately. And that leads to the next one. And I have to say, if you're going up in an anthology series, Mm -hmm. that's a good feeling. And I was digging one, digging two a little bit more than the first one. And man, I fucking love three. The third episode, this, ah, man,
3: it's so good. It's so good. Which I think going back to what I was saying before about anthologies of they're all so different that everybody will find something they kind of latch on to. I find really interesting because I sat there and I was watching it with my fiance and a friend of mine and we finished this one here, The Autopsy uh, by David Pryor. And I just looked at my friend. And I was like, I loved this one. He's like, oh, I agree. This was a good one. And my fans said, this is one of my least favorites. How? I think it really just depends on what your interests and sensibilities are for the whole. So when we get into some of the, the later ones, <clears> those were more of the favorites. But for me, Autopsy just yeah. clicks on everything I wanted.
2: Aaron and I have seen lots of stuff. We both were blown away by this one. And we both cringed a couple of times which is hard to get both of us to do and for me one of the most fun parts was my brother had also been watching the show like on his own time and at one point i got a text message from mark that said autopsy whoa awesome they like fucking great or something and i was like i'm getting a text about it because yeah it's that good so yes the autopsy uh directed by david Pryor, and i guess he uh he made a movie that I actually wanted to work into our unsung, one of our upcoming unsungs called The Empty Man. That's that's a talk for another episode. Yeah, um, it, it really became it's
3: kind of a it's cult well darling. Of, it came out of nowhere. It didn't really pop up on major things. And then slowly I just kept hearing everybody was talking about... It was Yeah, that's I, think where, yeah, yeah that's I saw. It. Of everybody saying like, oh, The Empty Man is kind of like the sleeper horror hit of uh, the year. So yeah. He showing right from The Empty Man going into the autopsy, like, I'm I'm interested in seeing David Pryor's other stuff. Yeah.
2: And this one, I mean, you know, there's different boxes people like to have ticked when they're watching something. I really love older guys, you know, that have lived a lot of their life. I like that. Yeah. Where they're like, they're they're not jaded, but they're like such realists and they're just having their talks. I like that stuff. And this surrounds... A blue collar setting, which I also like. Um, I think it might be rural Pennsylvania. Which, is that wait, where it takes blue place? Blue collar
3: horror. That's back to graveyard.
2: Shift. It, it is back to gra- graveyard shit. Um, no, but it's like a. I think it's in like a Pennsylvania. Yeah, town it's a very kind of a
3: rural, like kind of a mining town. Yeah, um, it's like the 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 town sheriff with his deputy and like the yep. the town corner, the town doctor. Like it's all the very like the town this, the town sure. that kind of locale.
2: So Autopsy, to me, is like an equal parts blending of a great mystery, a great character study, because they really, F. Murray Abraham, not only is he a phenomenal actor, I love that dude, he's like so good, but this short little film really does flesh out his character extremely well. Oh yeah. So it's a character study, mystery, alien invasion story, and kind of like, action gore movie but it's beautifully balanced and i've never seen this story done exactly this way at all yeah I, and i've i searched my memory banks i'm like is it ripping anything off and i'm like no it's not it's really fucking cool
3: this whole thing so the the whole story of kind of the sheriff in this small town investigating um, a series of killings going on and they kind of track it back to uh, this random guy who kind of went berserk and he's, uh ends up racing off into the, the mine shafts, and the mine shaft collapses. And now, all the people who died in that mine shaft, they're now having to call in the coroner and say, We really need the favor to do, do like a mass do autopsy. Yeah, a mass autopsy. Get through all of these as soon as you can. And they know that there's something kind of odd going on. So the sheriff asks them, please like record all your notes and get them to me this way. Like I'm aware of what's going on. So he's kind of doing this whole side recording of everything that's going on specifically for his friend, the sheriff. That's kind of like an off the record thing of here's everything that I found out as I'm investigating this.
2: Yeah. Cause there's some fear of liabilities.
3: Yeah. As
2: to like, who would be responsible legally and all that. Yeah. Cause I so think it was like, too. they
3: chased them into the mine shaft and yeah. all this stuff. So it ends up turning into a very confined, almost, uh, I wouldn't say like, a um, it feels like a really haunting
2: radio show Ex- that you actually, exactly. are you going to say that? Yes. Cause it's a, F Murray, Abraham, for anyone that doesn't know who he is, just look him up, find him on YouTube or something and watch something he's in because he has one of those voices. Like if, if I'm going to have Morgan Freeman read my eulogy like, I would want F. Murray Abraham to give, like, a long speech about me. I would like, want they him both to read have my great, will. Yeah, they, <laughs> exactly. They have great voices, these guys. Um, and, yeah, he's just so good. Yeah. And, and so a lot of it is him talking. If you've ever seen Grand Budapest Hotel, he plays the adult Zero Mustafa. So he narrates that film as well. Yeah. So there is this, like, really comforting quality to it that I, I liken it to a radio show. Um, and it's also like in a dark room with you know, just the ring light of the autop. It's like yeah. a makeshift morgue. They don't really have a morgue. So I think his friends, the sheriff sets him up in like an old warehouse space, yeah. which makes it even
3: creepier. It just, there's so many layers of creepy in this one. And I think it really does work as it's great that we got all of the lead up to this. So we get like the first 25, 30 minutes of. The story leading up to, now this is why we're all doing this autopsy here at this kind of makeshift morgue. But even if they took that out and or trimmed it down, I would still be so interested yeah. in all of that stuff that happens. I love that they have that first part, but if you give me the last 20 minutes, right there, like you said, I think that would be such a solid kind of a, uh, like a bottle episode of... This would be an episode of suspense on uh, the old-time radio show. It's right, so old time. Yeah, yeah,
2: like, it's just... We have a guy whose voice is like, peculiar happenings at the, at the mine shaft yeah. over in such and such PA. It's, it's
3: got that feeling to it's it. It's just like, okay, give us a, a creepy storyline, give us a great actor, and just let him loose. Let the actor act. And he doesn't even need to act against anything. It's just him just kind of looking around and investigating and just talking out loud is captivating for the back half of this episode. And
2: obviously we both love film. Something that blew my mind on, on this one in terms of the script writing and the direction, this short feels like a feature in terms of the amount of depth and information you get, Yeah, but it's, it's like shorter and it never feels rushed. It has this like lackadaisical, like, like a chill pace yeah. But it but it gives you so much. It's it's really impressive. I I was actually kind of nervous after I saw this one because I'm like, can it go up from here? Like how could this series yeah. keep getting better than this? I'm like, this might be one of the touchstones of one of the best. So and it actually goes right into uh the fourth episode. I call it in my head the lotion, but it's not the title. The outside. The outside is the title.
3: I also always think of it as... It's the lotion It's the lotion one.
2: You guys think this one's about lotion? Uh, (laughs) This was directed by Anna Lily
3: Amapur. Yep. So a lot of people probably know her from She Kind of Hit the Scene with a Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, uh, the vampire film. And that's kind of the first thing that I had heard her from. I know she did a lot of other stuff as well. Um, I know she did like The Bad Batch. But that was kind of the the main one that kind of put her in my mind at that point. Yeah, I've never seen the Bad Batch. I think, I,
2: I, I do know that a girl walks home. Is, it's solid. It's a cool movie. This this feeling and tone of this short is very very different from that. So it's kind of cool. It shows that she has quite a bit of range. Yeah, this one is accomplished in what it sets out to do.
3: Yeah, this, I felt
2: un. Do you think it obviously all right this one wants you to feel uncomfortable and uneasy and and I felt it.
3: I mean I would agree. Yeah, like this one definitely it wants to make you laugh in parts, it wants to make you squirm in parts and then it wants to make you not know which to do Mm. in other points. Yeah, it definitely does like there's definitely a lot of melancholy in here. It's all over the place tonally, but not accidentally all over the plate tonally it's all very specific and very intentional and I think it kind of puts you at ease as mm. much as uh the main character uh, Kate Micucci is a um kind of a very odd duck person with her uh lovely husband who's I believe like the sheriff played by Martin Starr and she just works at a bank and it's the other women that she always sees, the the popular ones of she's, their own clique. She's painfully good. Yes. Her performance is, it's impressive. It was surprising to me because I had only known her from more comedic things. And then seeing her in this where it's, you get to play awkward that it's, well, you you chuckle at her because, yeah, who can be that awkward of, oh, she brings, like she but taxidermies been... a duck or whatever yeah. it was to bring as a gift to a, a party gathering. But then also you genuinely do feel bad for her of she's trying to be involved. She wants to be like everybody else. And it's just so difficult for her that she clings to the things that she thinks will get her there. Yeah.
2: I think horror is most effective when it can manage to tap into a collective feeling that people have had such as anytime you see a movie where someone's teeth get chipped, Ugh. it hits everyone. It doesn't matter who I, you are. <laughs> and I do feel like when horror presents a, a character that feels unsure of themselves or down on themselves, every human being has felt down on themselves or inadequate in a new job or, or going to school. And there's maybe like a kid who always busts your balls and makes you feel like shit, bullied. Everyone knows what that feels like. You work that into a horror movie. You're changing the rules of what that person could end up doing because it's a horror movie. Yeah. So then it makes it made me feel more uneasy where I'm like, I feel really bad for this girl, but I think worse shit's going to happen.
3: Yeah. Which so. I think works in this one specific. And it just generally works in horror because for us to kind of sympathize with her character of Stacy on feeling like she's not part of the group, feeling like she has nobody to relate to in what she's going through. I think that's very similar to a lot of probably the horror community growing up of. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have a ton of people to like talk horror with for the most part. And I'm sure a lot of people, it was trying to find the other ones in the group of like, Hey, are you weird too? Do you want to be weird together? Um, yeah. So really? It, it and her, of-
2: her husband plays more like what, you or I, what our parents would have been like, he's awesome. He's a great husband, Yeah, but he has a motherly element where he's constantly just being like, you're great, hun. you You're good, hun. I love you. Like he, he tells her really sweet things. Like yeah. he pulls out individual things that I felt were really heartfelt and nice, but it clearly isn't helping her. Like it's, yeah. it's not penetrating through the the guys that she, well, that's the other thing, the effects. I mean, the tone of the thing is amazing the garishness of the way it's shot. Um, it almost has a fisheye lens feel like you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're being watched like in this bowl and the colors, because it's Christmas time and Tim and I love a good holiday time. It, it has like almost a gremlins feel like when you're in the living room of Billy, yeah. it has like that. It's like, Oh, it's almost like Bill, Billy's living room from gremlins. And the, the, what they, the subtle things they do, to the actress in addition to her performance they put contacts on this woman that make her cross-eyed like they, yeah. they that's really jarring and i don't know if um you seem to be more familiar with the actress outside of it mm-hmm. does she have the ability to like almost make her eyes bug a little like there are a lot of people jim carrey different actors can change their faces
3: mm-hmm. Maybe there's, I'm not familiar that much. I just know her from uh, Garfunkel and Oates, and okay. then I think she was in The Little Hours.
2: I'm pretty sure she's got a. She's wearing like a fake nose. There's there's these really subtle little things that they did with her. Yeah, she's like cheating an underbite. The way when you watch Sling Blade, they didn't do any prosthetics on Billy Bob. He just he pushed his jaw out and would hunch himself down, and he, he made himself look different. She does like a, a pretty amazing physical performance. Um yeah. I was so sold on her. And I and I love um Martin Starr. Yes, Martin Starr. He's awesome. I'm just yeah. a huge Silicon Valley fan. So I I love that dude.
3: Which it was refreshing um, in this to have a spouse in like a movie or spouse in specifically the like, core or something that is so supportive like you said, he wants to do the right thing, he wants to say the right thing. And I think that's why it just makes the whole ordeal yeah. so heartbreaking and melancholy the entire time of wanting to help somebody, wanting to show them their own self worth Mm -hmm. and them just not gripping that at all. um, I I would not call
2: all the episodes weird. This episode's weird. Yeah. Cause like Tim's saying it, it fucks with your emotions. The whole hour is really a lot of different emotions. Like a lot of times scene by scene like like within the scene it almost has um if anyone's seen the fargo tv show it, I, I feel like she probably really enjoys that show because it has that martin Starr has that like well they both the the couple have that midwestern vibe yeah. um you know she's rocking like a mullet like with with, <laughs> with bangs you know in the front and you could just picture them like go into the corner store eh? you know like there's that feeling yeah. to it but even the women that play the total bitches that she works with, the superficial self-absorbed women that are so mean to her. Like everyone plays their part perfectly. It's extremely well-directed, but it's so weird. It's a very
3: weird episode. Which I really expected them to be meaner to her but then they kind of include her in, invite her to the party. Yeah, I still and I thought, don't know oh, why that is. I figured like, oh, they're going to invite her there that way we can make fun of her or something like that. But that isn't. And it. then they actually let her in, and then it's all we're, we got gifts for everybody at the party. Okay, what are they going to do to her? But oh, they actually, a, they include a
2: prank that I never understood. Of when that girl from work hands her the secret Santa and she opens it and it's got that lady's name. Why did she do that? Like it seemed weird. It was like they set her up to bring a gift. When all the other women just got a gift, I didn't think anyone else brought a gift.
3: Yeah, that I don't know. It, it set up a great duck moment. Or yeah, I think it's a. Duck. But then I figured, like, oh, now they're all going to make fun of her. And then the host of the party was actually pretty nice about the whole yeah. thing and just kind of like played it off. And it's okay, so they're not all. No, they're not. They're, they're not, not evil. Yeah, they're
2: just kind of superficial jerks. Um, yeah, which is real interesting that we've talked about the outside for probably six or seven minutes. And we never even mentioned lotion when that's our intro was talking all about how there's lotion. You, you guys might wonder where the lotion comes so into
3: play. that gift that she gets at the party is everybody gets this lotion that's supposed to be I like I wish I could this. remember the name of it.
0: Allo glow. It's that glow.
3: Yeah, it's like this amazing lotion that's supposed to change your life. And it's done by the uh, this <laughs> very <laughs> odd Dan Stevens character. He Um, played
2: the lead in The Guest. Yeah. And I think a lot of TV. Oh, yeah. He was
3: uh, on Legion and everything. Um, But he's perfect. He is. It's like
2: your perfect tacky-ass infomercial from, like, maybe the mid-90s. It's like this vaguely European accent. I wish one of us could remember the name of the lotion. (laughs) It's a stupid name. It's like... like Feo or, or yeah. Loro, some kind of weird shit.
0: Glow is the only skincare product that transforms your body, mind, and soul.
2: And she falls for it. She just starts ordering tons of it yeah. because he's talking to her through the TV. And you don't really know if she's losing her shit and thinks he's talking to her or if it's some sort of weird signal that really is talking to her. That's what I meant about weird. They're, they're, they, they create a lot of strange moments and they don't really give you answers to a lot of yeah. it. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. It's like that episode in the Twilight Zone movie where the kid could wish whatever he wants and oh, it comes yeah. true. It kind of has that feeling where you're just along for the ride. Stop thinking about why and let this, mo- this episode wash over you. Like, just absorb it all, because it's crazy.
3: Yeah. But so the lotion. She becomes obsessed with the lotion, and it just kind of derails her life, her psyche, everything involved. She
2: immediately has a massive rash.
3: Yeah. And everyone around her says to just,
2: it's working. Just keep, keep like, let it keep working. Her husband's like, it's not working. She's like, no, the guy on the TV told me it's working. It's just doing its job. He's like, hun, it's not doing its yeah. job. It you it look, itches, you it look like a keeling. raspberry, hun. Yeah. You know, he's like trying to help her and she just keeps slathering it on. Then she starts itching,
3: which makes it even creepier. So, yeah, I think that one is when I watched it, I didn't know what to think. I was interested beginning to end. I still don't know. And then it finished, and I was like, I I don't know. But I think thinking back on it, I really, that was interesting. And it was so oddly unique that I was just, I'm into that one. It's cool that you say that because
2: when I watched it, I thought I liked it. And as the days went on, I thought about it more and I'm like, you know, of eight episodes, that's the one I'm probably thinking like a decent amount about. Yeah. And I played it for one client who also thought it was really weird. But after watching it a second time, I really, really warmed up to it even more to where I think it's quite an accomplished short film. Yeah. It's it's equal parts the stuff. And, and like, a, you know, a weird Coen Brothers movie. It's like
3: the stuff meets Starry Eyes.
2: With, with a touch of like Norman Bates thrown in. Yeah. It's it's cool. We So far, we are recommending this show wholeheartedly. Episodes one to four. There has not been a big drop anywhere yeah. yet.
3: For me, so. Which, continuing along with that, brings us to episode five, Pickman's Model uh, by Keith Thomas, which was a... Uh, the first of two. Yeah
2: two HP Lovecraft adaptations. I don't want to sound like a loser, but I was so stoked for both the Lovecraft ones. Like I never can get enough Lovecraft and seeing the quality that we had seen prior, I kind of was even more excited because I'm like, how could it not be great? Yeah. So, and this, yeah, Keith Thomas, Keith Thomas directed this.
3: Yeah, so he did uh, Firestarter, the remake uh, with Zac Efron I think, what, last year or a year before? And then also did The Vigil, the one about the Orthodox Jewish funeral situation of the man is supposed to stay with the body and keep vigil throughout the night. And then all of the strange happenings that go on with him during that.
2: Oddly enough, Tim, I've seen Firestarter and wish I didn't. And I haven't seen The Vigil, but I really want to. (laughs) I've wanted to see it for years. I think it came out three or four years ago. And for some reason, I just never was able to catch it. And I love the idea. I want to see it. I think it might be on Hulu now. Well, then I might have to go to Hulu Um, and check that out. But yeah, this one, Pikmin's model. It's a very mixed bag for me. And uh, it's not bad. (laughs) Kind of like
3: Crispin Glover's
2: accent. It's not bad. Some of the things that I thought they wouldn't be able to pull off well, they nailed it. Other things that I was just 100% sold on, like the inclusion of Crispin Glover, guess what my least favorite part of this whole episode is? Crispin Glover. But I love Crispin Glover. Yeah. So that really kind of sucked. I'm still wrestling with that. He's my favorite part of it in theory. Yeah. In reality, I think he, I think he brings it down. He brings it down. It's,
3: it's a very interesting choice he made as far as the the performance I don't know the legitimacy of whatever that accent right. is I know I went it on can't like be. yeah I went online and people are like oh it's because it's like an old uh, mix of Irish Bronx and it's like you people I don't know if you're just making this up at this point um, yeah it's his
2: uh, I can't believe we haven't even touched on the story we're just talking about his accent <laughs> It is a period piece, and it takes place in New England because it's a freaking Lovecraft story, and it's about um, art students, which is a cool setup, and there's, a, there's a, a character who comes into the fold, into these somewhat snooty, kind of, uh, you know, highfalutin art students. They're not complete assholes, but they're kind of dry, and Crispin Glover's character, who is Pikmin, walks in to the establishment with these paintings and his crazy nose that he has naturally and an accent that just threw Tim and I for a loop and yeah. Aaron and my brother and every client I know that's watched it has been like, he's like, ain't hey, it boils and boils. you like, what are you like? What is that? His performance. And I know he's a wacko in real life. I could see him doing that just to be like, I'm going to do it. They're not going to argue with me. I'm Crispin Glover. They're lucky. I agreed, you know, um, but what was your take on the story? Because I thought it was a cool story. I thought I was down
3: with the story, I definitely thought it was cool. Even aside from like the Chris McGlover accent thing, I think it, he still eventually does, I got past. Yeah, it. like it's still a fun performance from him as the character of Pikmin. So the whole thing of the the art student um, kind of getting involved, Pikmin being interested in his work, and then once he sees his work, he kind of starts seeing visions. He starts feeling like he's going insane and. He wants to distance himself from Pikmin because he feels like there's some evilness to the whole thing.
2: It's a Lovecraft concept of Pikmin is painting things that are so beyond comprehension evil. It's like that creeping madness that it
3: makes you crazy. Yeah. Like by looking at it. So we jump years later into um, as the uh, will is older and he has a family now and everything like that. And then Pikmin kind of comes back into his life. All of a sudden the, Studio he works with, decides they're going to do a whole gallery of Pikmin's items, and he starts wanting to try to stop it because he knows it's been driving him crazy, he's been seeing all these horrible visions, and it's going to happen to other people. I think, overall, I really was interested in all of this. I, mm-hmm. mean, I mean, I'm a sucker for whole, like, the Lovecraft idea of... I don't want to be
2: anticlimactic, but of the two Lovecraft stories, yeah, this one was the clear winner for, for me, of the two.
3: Yeah. My only thing that I didn't like about it is the actual kind of Lovecraftian elements, like the the creature designs. Mm-hmm. I thought those were a little more modern feeling lacking yeah, yeah, to what I know. was expecting. It looked more like a something like the heartless and kingdom hearts. It looked more like a video game type creature. Yeah. um, As opposed to like a, something that's just madness inducing in my head. Um, That's
2: one of the fucked up things about Lovecraft is he got away with that writing it on the page. Yeah. It's like your brain as a reader can try to comprehend it. And then you, whatever you think of, you're like, imagine if it was like, 10 times more scary than what I'm thinking, I guess. And you can kind of like make it that way. <laughs> when you're showing it and watching it, it's really on the backs of the effects people and the designers, you know? Yeah. And I'm in agreement with you that um, I think when I said in the beginning that I thought Pikmin's model, it was sort of upsetting to me because there's a back and forth. There's an unevenness. Some of the visuals in it, I think, are, are absolutely oh, yeah. excellent. And then other ones kind of don't make it. So it makes for like an uneven episode for, for me at least. And you seem to agree yeah. overall, I could think of many worse ways to spend an hour. It was, it was a fun hour and I do really dig the payoff. It is a the, gut the, punch. The payoff is great. The payoff yeah. is excellent. Um, anyone that likes, I don't know, grand scale grotesquerie, I think you'll appreciate what they conjure up to jam into a TV episode. It's yeah. cool.
3: So I think this is one that I would definitely go back and rewatch. Yeah, I might like it more the
2: second time because it won't be so off-put by the few things. There's a little bit of um, how the madness works. Like, why does it maybe affect someone less than I think it should? And another person, whatever. I mean, we're talking abstract concepts. So maybe
3: one person's psyche is stronger than the other or something like that. So kind of directly into our Lovecraft uh, double feature there. After Pikmin's model, the next episode of the series is Dreams in the Witch House by Catherine Hardwick. Uh, You might know from, I believe she did uh, Twilight. I want to say she did 13. Um, Oh, Twilight. It's so... Wow, I
2: was so excited to find that out.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean... I think. Oh, Lords of on- Dogtown? Yeah. Red Riding Hood. I think, honestly, probably as far as the, the directors of the series go, she's the most Hollywood, probably in terms yeah. of the number of larger budget or more mainstream things that she's done. Um, I don't have a problem with that, but I do think she is slightly mispaired. Her
2: aesthetic with- and style is really not the best choice for this story.
3: Yeah. I think this story overall, so Dreams in the Witch House um, follows uh, Ron Weasley. Uh, it follows Rupert Grint as um, kids. His sister ends up dying, and her he sees her spirit, and her spirit gets pulled away into another realm, and he spends his entire life trying to find a way to make contact with her, and he's kind of disappointed by all these charlatans and all of these other supposed psychics and he's just searching for a way to be able to get back in touch and rescue his sister spirit from wherever she is now and that kind of leads him into all these very occult and all of these very um, evil adjacent type things um that is naturally a very lovecraft story
2: i hand it to the production people because visually it was pretty damn cool i did like the 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 visual look of it i thought it was interesting it had a lot of aqua and turquoise yeah. kind of colors to it it was it was interesting in that way i wanted to love this adaptation so there was that i was like kind of fighting with myself where as it was progressing i was like i don't really know if i'm enjoying this but I
3: want to enjoy this. I think it could have used more time to breathe. Yeah. I agree. It, it really ended up, it had a lot of interesting ideas in it. Had a lot of interesting things of, he ends up finding somebody that introduces him to this concoction that allows him to kind of pass out and dream into this realm that he finds his sister again. And it's very kind of like the upside down. He's just out in like these very, like you said, it's this like turquoise wooded area with the fog. And then he comes back and he's trying to find a more permanent way to get her back from there. And then we get into almost this alternate story of, okay, now from doing that, he then ends up having to go to this other house where he's going to use this and then enter that dream realm. But also it's involved with this other witch that's searching for reclaiming like her and him and getting back from this realm and then this other kind of very human-faced rat creature. And there's a lot of stuff going on that is very tightly packed into 63 minutes that is not necessarily anything bad. I just really wished this thing could have had another 20 minutes to make those ideas kind of all fit together a little bit better.
2: Like a Three Bears scenario, some of these stories, the running time is just right. And some of them you wish they had a little extra time. Others you wish it was even a little shorter. This one needs an extra 20 minutes. Because it feels, it feels half-baked in some ways, but it also feels like overkill of like a sensory overload in other ways. It suddenly has like these spurts of like this, this intense action. And it's like people running and being chased by a witch and there's all these effects and the witch has got, got a flame inside of her and there's yeah. mist and then, then you got your rat creature and then, you know, there's the sister and then he's tripping out again and then they're in this house and it is a lot, it's a lot jammed into one thing. Um, I feel like Stuart Gordon adapted this story in a Masters of Horror episode.
3: Yes, I believe so. Um.
2: I don't think he nailed it either. We've talked about how Lovecraft, his work isn't always unfilmable, but it's hard sometimes to get the tone right, to make it feel like Lovecraft. I do think the previous director and the previous story was closer. It felt more Lovecraft to me. This changes some elements of his original story, which I'm okay with. It's an adaptation. Um, I don't want to embarrass my, my lovely lady, Erin, too much, but um, she watched the whole series with me. She is also a Lovecraft fan, and I did write down uh, her notes on this one. And according to Erin, it was okay, but there was too much going on. It felt jumbled and disjointed. The rap person looked very wonderful, but didn't do much for the story itself. The whole thing just felt eh. And I really am inclined to agree with her. It's
1: not inaccurate.
2: It's not bad. So good job, Aaron. You summed it up the way I would sum it up. If you like monsters and you like a decently cool witch design, if you happen to be a Harry Potter fan and Rupert is like your team Rupert, I mean, really, he's a good actor. He's in most of it and he's serviceable. There's nothing wrong with him. Um, He's given it his all. Doesn't seem like he's calling it in or anything.
3: And I think what you said about as far as Pikmin's model, that it captured the tone of Lovecraft a little bit better in terms of the... There was more dread. Creeping, yeah, that yeah. dread, that creeping madness, the the unknown. This never really felt necessarily along those lines. It felt a little bit more commercial horror compared yeah. to kind of Lovecraftian. I
2: didn't realize this was the director of Twilight. I didn't know that till you mentioned it earlier. Yeah. It kind of makes more sense now. I don't think she's some crappy director. I, the Twilight series is hated by many. I have never seen them for more than a five-minute clip. Yeah. I've never seen them. What I've seen, I know I don't like. So I just never bothered watching it. But this has a little bit of that CW gloss.
1: Yeah, not,
2: it, not that bad. It isn't like, what the fuck am I watching? But it just it kind of felt PG-13-y. When the other ones feel R, yeah, they have like an R vibe. This
3: almost oddly felt like a Harry Potter mystery that just had a more gory yeah. horror setting. This could have been um, an
2: offshoot theme in an episode or two of Sabrina. It really could have been the, yeah. the TV show.
3: Yeah, the, the Chilling Adventures version. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah, I'm sorry, should have
3: mentioned that. <laughs> The yeah. Melissa Joan Hart one, I would have watched. No, that. I
2: said, um, <laughs> hey, I'm I'm all right with Sabrina. There's yeah. some really bad shit in that series, but there's also really good shit. Like I, I I found it enjoyable, and I watched the whole thing. So, but yeah, this is like a Lovecraft Sabrina type of feel. Maybe I'm being a little too harsh on it, and it's not that light. It's dark enough, I think, this, but it's
3: pretty light. I don't know. I think this one has a pretty. Other than maybe like, um, actually, other than like Pikmin's model and uh, Graveyard Rats, this has a pretty decent gut punch ending. I guess you
2: are right. The ending, yeah, yeah, the ending is gut punchy. the The beginning, and I the think, it's art, just right.
3: because it doesn't set itself with the same tone as the ending of Pikmin's model. <laughs> it yeah. almost ends on more like a it's like it wants to be a darkly humorous note
2: I watched these once as they came out mm-hmm. and you you kind of reiterating like the gut punch ending it kind of jogged my memory to really remember like exactly what you're talking about and yeah I take that back it's 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 heavier than Sabrina for sure yeah. that was a dumb statement on my part it's it's not that that PG um I don't know I just think it's it's one of the lesser entries, which is really not that less of an entry. This is a pretty solid anthology series.
3: Yeah, I think there's really no episode from it that I feel is a waste of my time. Um, there are ones that I definitely prefer over others. There are ones that I would say like, yeah, I saw it once, like I'm I'm good with it. Um, but I think there's none of them that I finished. And I said like, yeah. wish I... Skimmed through that and saved myself 50 minutes.
2: I think it's safe to say on a one to one hundred scale, Tim and myself's least favorite episodes are still in the upper 70s yeah. to low eighties, which is pretty amazing for an eight-episode anthology show.
3: Yeah.
2: So it's yeah. Anything that we're down on, it's just because we we're expecting. We're expected more because yeah. you give us autopsy. We want everything to be almost as good as autopsy.
3: That's also that's, it's one of those things that you don't get a lot of necessarily like good Lovecraft adaptations. Yeah, that's that, that whenever you somebody throws around like, oh, it's Lovecraftian or Oh, based on a Lovecraft, you kind of set yourself up for like, here it is. Like we get some Lovecraft yeah. stuff. I can't um, wait
2: for us to do a Lovecraft episode.
3: I'm just It's like, gonna be fun. Yeah.
2: Um Speaking of fun. Yes, I was just gonna say. Going from that slight dip, that little bit of a lull, it picks right back up, like way up with the viewing. Good evening.
1: Tonight I'm going to gift
2: you an eight transcendence at the greatest expense. Ah! Mesmerizing. Holy shit, the viewing is worthy of two or three viewings. Yes. And that's the one you mentioned
3: him earlier. Yep. Panos Cosmatos. What a guy, this guy. Yeah. So I, like, I originally uh, watched, like, Beyond the Black Rainbow. Um, and then later on with um, Mandy. Mandy and all of those. His dad's a
2: filmmaker, right? I think his father yeah, his was a filmmaker. His dad
3: originally did Tombstone. Okay. Um, And I know, actually, I think the money that he's like the checks or whatever it was, the money that his father made from Tombstone was like left to him and he used that money to, I think, do Beyond the Black Rainbow. Which was super low budget. Yeah. Yeah. So like that money fed into that one from there. But he has a style yeah. all his own.
2: We occasionally talk about directors who make films for themselves and anyone who happens to get their vibe. And... uh Panos is one of those dudes, and I, I love him for that. When you hear him in interviews, he could be such a pretentious, like, art prick, but he's not. He's like a real stripped-down, regular yeah. dude. And, uh, and he makes some weird stuff, really uniquely weird stuff. Yeah. And the viewing is... The
1: viewing oh boy. is
3: somehow so captivating, though, that most of the runtime for the 57 minutes we're introduced to this. It's almost like, um, if you think of the haunting of, Oh, we got together like this psychic and we got together this other person mm. and they kind of form this group to go into this house. It's very similar. Cause in, in this case here, Peter Weller is kind of this, um, older eccentric, uh, recluse who ends up pulling together all of these various people of, Oh, it's like the, the physicist or something. Yeah. And the writer and the it's musician, like, I, I
2: was watching it thinking, Wow. If you cross Jeff Bezos and Hunter S. Thompson, it's like this <laughs> super wealthy, wacky, eccentric dude. And it's Peter Weller. I mean, he's a Robocop. Like, yeah. how great is that? Um, and yeah, you're right. He takes, uh, it's different people. They don't know why they're going. They seem unconnected completely.
4: Yeah.
2: I think one of them is a recording personality. Yeah. He's like Eric a Andrei. hit maker. Eric yeah. Andre is the guy who like, he would be recording like the the ten most famous like hip hop songs from that year. He worked with all those different people. Like that's his deal. And who are some of the other people? There's a so, writer.
3: Yeah. So uh, Steve Agee is uh, a writer that Peter Weller's character like admires and likes and. and wants he's like a be card-carrying to... curmudgeon. Yeah, it's kind of like um, a Bill Maher type
2: of gruff attitude.
3: And uh, Charlene Yee is this the scientist of the group who is there for kind of providing her input on whatever they're going to view. But it's all of these very interesting characters that you spend so much of the runtime, just kind of hanging out with them of none of them. You don't know what's going on. They don't know what's going on. And it's just kind of experiencing of, okay, so all of them kind of sussing out, why are we here? What's the host's deal? but also getting used to kind of their personalities and their own um, reasons for why they wanted to be a part of this.
2: And the setting, I mean, they go to his house, but it's like, there's no way we could describe this to you like over a podcast, but it made me feel like you took a handheld game, arcade game from like the 70s and early 80s, like they would make all these handheld games And if you could kind of take that handheld game and turn it into a mansion, I can't, I can't put it into words. It's like, it's so 70s, but kind of like brutalist future, but also like disco ball and drug induced and psychedelic. Yeah. But like somehow it's also uh, this, this sort of dystopian feel it's cold, but it's warm. It's, it's this, really hard to explain. It's this it's off-putting.
3: Odd architecture that if somebody took the interior of the Death Star and just made it 70s Lounge. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's good.
2: It's like Barbarella meets the Death Star.
3: Yeah, that's yeah, just really, like, oh really yeah, weird. Vader just finished his meeting in here. He just choked out the other guy. Now dim those lights, put some soft keys yeah. in there, and we'll just kind of hang out in the uh, the living room pit area.
2: And Peter Weller has a you would want to say sidekick, but then there's some interplay with their dialogue where he kind of gives her superior credit to him. Yeah. It's his doctor. And it's that lovely lady. She's a really good actress. I don't think I remember her name. Uh, Sophia, Sophia? Boutella, I think. Okay. Yeah, um, she was in um, Atomic Blonde. And Kingsman. The Kingsman, yeah. She's um, really great. She plays his, like, almost like she stepped more out of, like, a Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino yeah. movie. Like, It's a really odd combo. Everything about it is odd. But she just sort of hangs next to him, acting like sexy and maybe dangerous. She's like this cross between the two and also highly intelligent. But they're both like kind of junkies. It's really...
3: Yeah, they like... It's (laughs) really weird. They smoke like a a lot of weed. They do a lot of coke. Yeah,
2: she made some kind of blue powdered additive to put into coke to make it crazier. Coke Zero. Yeah, it's
3: it's... (laughs) (laughs) just... So... Yeah, it's the entire thing. I know it may not sound like, where's the horror in this? It gets there. I think it, it really, really gets there. It takes its time getting there, but it gets there. And I think it really just wants to set you up for that juxtaposition of, okay, I'm getting used to this atmosphere. I'm getting used to just these vibes. So then when things happen, things happen hard. Right. Um.
2: But it subverts your expectations because there's a moment in it Peter Weller is taking his time it's almost like he's prepping these people to be able to accept something yeah so he starts like giving them different sorts of drugs like like the intensity but then he plays like a weird game where one dude who quit smoking his exact brand of cigarette is on the table so as it was progressing my jaded like asshole mind was like ah this is going to turn into Kind of a take on one of those would-you-rather movies. Yeah. You know, I was like, don't go there. Don't go in this route of what's he going to try and convince them to do horrible shit? Like, what level can can you buy someone? Yeah. Thankfully, it doesn't go there. But there's a little moment where it teases you, and I'm like, I don't know where this is going. For yeah. most of it, I had no idea where it was going. Towards the end, you start getting, like, where he's <laughs> headed. We're trying not to spoil this but also
3: to entice you guys to want to view the viewing. So, so I don't want to give anything away farther than probably. I mean, after he kind of introduces them to all this, they like, they have all the drugs they can. He kind uh, of
2: has a mind blowing ace up his sleeve. Yeah. And that's, that he's been holding on. That's
3: to. when he brings them into the viewing room and you get to see what it is that he had found that he wanted to pull this crew together to show and that's when kind of the entire episode pops off.
2: It's uh, something that'll yeah. like, like blow the the collective consciousness, like blow your minds. Yeah. So he kind of wanted to put into place a team of people that could present or handle or I
3: mean, it's quantify kind of, it, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's like the very kind of, as I said before, it's like the haunting approach of, we're going to investigate this. Let's pull in like all of the various people with the skeptic, the psychic, the like, Let's yeah. get all of the people in the room, because actually we forgot to mention the fourth guy um, out of that crew, which is a the medium. Um... Oh, yeah.
2: Oh, God. <laughs> he's such a character, too. I can't believe we forgot him until now. Yeah, he's important, too.
3: So, yeah. So you have, like, the all of these various people that are going to come at it from different angles just so he can kind of get a full scope of what exactly did I get here um, in my viewing room? So I think also part of these are given away a little bit. So if you go online and you look up these episodes, don't look at the covers for any of these episodes. Yeah, try not to. Because I feel like a lot of them kind of really give stuff away uh, that would otherwise kind of take away some of the fun and surprise.
2: And I think uh, Tim and I are enthralled with the series as a whole because of stuff like this. Like, the viewing is so different from the autopsy. It's so different. But both of those... Are, uh, they're my two favorites, the, those two. There's, it's like you're going on a really fun ride. You know, the, the, the cover poster for the show is like Guillermo's head. It's on, our, it's on our podcast. It's half open, and it's like a curio cabinet with these yeah. little little drawers pulled out with little key things to each story. It's so ballsy to present all this shit and actually deliver. It's cool. It's, like, impressive that they delivered. I don't love all of them, but I, I think, I think the viewing for anyone that likes, I always say that there's, there's internal sci-fi and external sci-fi. The internal is like, you know, where your brain can go and how you can have adventures in parts of your brain that you don't even unlock. It's crazy. Like the human body is its own bit of science fiction. And then the external would be like, you know, Star Wars, you're flying around in ships. Yeah. The viewing is is a fucked up story, and it's so l- slow paced that it, I think it might turn off some people that have that drive through mentality where they want it and they want it now. But man, when it goes <laughs> off the rails, I definitely know it people goes that off. Fell the rails. asleep
3: during that episode, yeah. um, and I knowing it was Panos Cosmatos the entire time. I was just like, "No, I'm here." <laughs>
2: if you've seen Mandy and hate Mandy, you probably won't like the viewing. I, I mean, it's fair to say. Yeah. it has a lot of in common uh tonally and and like the sound design and yeah. all that but um boy for any of you people out there that love to smoke like crazy amounts of weed and like to watch shit that f- <laughs> blows your mind the viewing is the the one viewing is it. the one for um, you
3: it's also the i think the main one out of all of these that I really wish this is like the the practice round for Panos two. Give him a lot of money and let him turn this into a full movie or a sequel to the short film because I am so interested in the hour that comes after the end of this. Yeah.
2: This is a totally different topic for a totally different episode, but if Don Coscarelli ever wants Phantasm to become a property that gets remade (laughs) as a, a reboot, might I suggest Panos directs it Give a bunch of money towards it. And my buddy Brian sent me a text message that blew my mind. And it was just a text message that said, had an idea. If they ever remake Phantasm, Liam Neeson playing the tall man. And it knocked my socks off because Liam Neeson has the stature. He has the gravitas. And imagine his voice saying, boy, Liam Neeson. I think he can do it.
3: I feel like if we... If we, <laughs> <laughs>
2: this is not happening, by the way. If anyone's gullible, so, so the Kickstarter
3: yeah. begins. Kickstarter starts, no, starts so, now. <laughs> so I think the if they do a remake of something like that, I would want them to go with a an unknown actor for the tall man.
2: Sure, you would. Because, but Liam Neeson would bring because he'd be like bringing what's her name into Stranger Things to get Stranger Things made. The true, he, yeah, it'd be that if he were on board. That yeah. would help, but I get you. You like get a nobody, but still, I want to give Brian credit. That was like some cool dream casting. I was it like, would he can. Fun. I'm imagining him with the hair, and he it would work. He would do it, but it let him good. still keep his Irish accent. <laughs> I suppose <laughs> would well, that be a <laughs> It's like he's not from Earth. Um, but really, Panos directing a Phantasm movie would be awesome. I mean, it, that's where it's it the
3: perfect from. idea of. Who's somebody that can really make use of, like, dream logic and weird atmosphere?
1: I feel like he's influenced by Phantasm,
2: so it it all makes sense. But just a dream. Just a dream for, like, a nice big budget Phantasm. So everybody start
3: that hashtag, uh, Panos Phantasm. Yeah, we should talk to Panos on that. Send him a message. That would be cool. So that brings us to the final episode of this season. Oh, Miss Jennifer Kent and Guillermo teaming up. (sighs) Yep. So this was The Murmuring uh, by Jennifer Kent, director of The Babadook.
2: Written by Guillermo del Toro. Mm-hmm. A short story by yeah.
3: Guillermo del Toro.
2: I didn't want this to be the last episode.
3: I wished the viewing was the last episode.
2: I I would have agree. swapped those yep. two. This is a weird choice. I don't know if Guillermo put this last because he wrote it and he... I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why this is last, other than the fact that this is, this is the most serious, depressing, heavy story. Yeah. And I don't know if there was a weird, like, after all of this fun and games and different types of madness, was it an attempt to leave viewers with with a, a more upscale, um, like, emotional aspect of horror, which I approve of? I just don't think it was the right one to end on. And most people I have talked to have wholeheartedly agreed that it was their least favorite episode. Of all my friends and and clients that I've asked, hey, which one didn't you like the most? Almost everyone says the murmuring. A few people said it was their favorite, which I could understand. But Tim and I could break this down for you, and we won't really be spoiling anything, because that's the problem, I think, with this
3: one. It's the most classically expected ghost story of the group
2: beautifully shot top-notch acting can't fault it for any of that yeah performances are really good directions really good story Mr. Guillermo dude story is so run-of-the-mill
3: yeah it's very I mean there's not a lot to kind of hang this on Um, it's just the this couple that they're both ornithologists they end up going off to this house over in this uh, i think it's an island where they're going to be studying birds like isolated and, awesome yeah. looking old house and it's clearly after there was some sort of issue in their past um that they're both still reeling over and she starts seeing things at this house she starts seeing things move in the night she starts seeing visions um and she starts feeling like she's going crazy. Her husband is feeling very dejected because she keeps turning him away and it's creating this rift between them. But overall, it, it's a lot of a very basic... Um, like, I know we talked off-show of, I was just <laughs> going to interject. Oh, the same... No, yes. no, the same thing you're interjecting. Oh, no, yeah, go ahead right there. We
2: talked off-show, both of us, about Guillermo del Toro makes one of the greatest ghost stories ever in the in the um, the devil's backbone and then he almost spawns and inspires several other filmmakers that he put his name on as helping to produce because he cares but the orphanage is a movie that is sort of like a different director who loves guillermo who's making a guillermo style ghost story called the orphanage that mr del toro then sees the passion he comes in to put his name on it as producer and now it felt like Guillermo was writing a movie, a short, kind of based on people's movies about his concepts. It's weird. Yeah. It, it is about a young child's ghost who can't rest, like yawn. How many times have you all seen that storyline? Then they interject this whole bird thing where birds go in those patterns. I think it's called...
3: I think it's called a murmuring.
2: You think it's a murmuring? I think it might be a different thing, but who knows? Uh, Neither of us are ornithologists. When birds flock in those crazy things, I guess it's probably called a murmuring. When they start interjecting this aspect where they're trying to figure out why they do it, and it's a great setup for the mom to be wearing these headphones and listening with sonar to the birds while they're doing these things. They, they posit that like one of their colleagues wrote a paper about how maybe the birds have telekinetic link, like actual birds so that they can do this. So they're throwing this shit at me. And I'm like, oh, I see. I see where this is going to get interesting. They're going to somehow work this in. And in my head, I'm like, I don't know. Maybe the souls of dead children or something go into birds. It's <laughs> far fetched. But I was like, where are these birds going to come in? Turns out. The birds don't mean shit. None of it means anything. It's more so this lady kind of spoiler. This lady needs to convince the child ghost that it's dead so that it stops being angry because a mean person killed the child. And then the two of them are able to accept and work through their grief now and go off together. I wasn't going to spoil any of them. But really, guys, is that even a spoiler? I mean, it's like it doesn't have a crescendo it doesn't have a, a nail-biting scary moment yeah but it's it's good it's just it's flat it's really flat and i was surprised i yeah. thought it was gonna have something super unique in it
3: like all the other ones have almost that like dagger twist yeah there's some of like n- not even necessarily like a a twist in terms of uh like a, a shamalan rug pull kind of deal but all of them have some sort of zinger or something towards the end that kind of shapes or alters what you had before. it. And this one, you just kind of know where it's going and you're just kind of following along. And it, it goes
2: exactly there. Yeah. That's what's weird about Which, it. Which
3: I mean, like I wouldn't have been
2: thrilled if she was dead at the end. It was her that was dead. I wouldn't have been thrilled, but it would have at least been a different outcome that I thought it was going to
3: be. Or she's trying to help the child move on. And then you find out the child isn't a ghost. The child is a something evil. And it's, yeah, what if
2: the child was the one that killed the parents? It was the other way yeah. around and you're helping this thing. And now it kills your husband. Yeah. That would have been crazy. I would have really mother, have dug Because that. the
3: mother's trying to warn you of yeah. they killed me. But I could
2: kind of see behind the scenes without being there. I have this weird feeling that. He really loves Jennifer Kent. He probably really loves The Babadook. The Babadook is a is a a breakdown of the stages of grief. I'm indifferent to the film. I think it's well made, but I don't adore it. Many people seem to adore it. Yeah. I can tell that Guillermo would adore that movie because it's so like deep and emotional and he's into that stuff. So maybe, for all we know, maybe he kind of wrote that after talking with Jennifer and wanting her to direct and maybe Guillermo was almost starstruck and kind of was trying to write something that he thought Kent would love yeah. because it feels babadook kind of. I, I mean, what we're reaching here, these are just our opinions. Because I think
3: they wrote it together. I don't know that could, that could be who two. had kind of more input on it, um, but it definitely seemed after, I mean, after the Babadook, it definitely seems very tailor-made to To her, her and her um, interests. Exactly. Yeah,
2: it's a good palate cleanser episode. It's a really poor choice for your climax episode.
3: Yeah, which oddly enough, like you said, it seems like the the heaviest of the episodes, despite not having a downer ending. It's one it's just of the more sad. yeah, and it's just like a I mean, sad. I honestly, episode. It, it ends on more of kind of a hopeful, happier note. That's true. Than the other ones, like I don't know how I say say this is somehow heavier than Pikmin's model. <laughs> No, you're right.
2: You're right. So I think... I th- guess it's the least... Maybe it's the least fantastical. It, it, because it's yeah. more... It's like no one really wants to watch a husband and wife be super sad and broken because their kid's dead. That's just a downer. And that's the majority of it. You know, she's hearing yeah. murmur. Well, when she's listening to the birds, she's hearing what sounds like kids. And that's just, like, really sad. Because I could, I could imagine a parent who lost their kid maybe hearing birds, and they sound like kids chattering maybe. That's just, like, sad, yeah. you know?
3: So I think it it does, even though it has kind of a uh, happier ending, it is an overall more uh, depressing <laughs> 60 minutes leading up to that. And I think it, it ends up being one of my least favorites because of a lot of the It's
2: the other, the others, the orphanage, the the, changeling, the
3: grief, like it's that overshadows a lot of the rest of it for me. The husband not understanding the wife, the divide that becomes between them, all of the things that it's, yeah, I've seen this done in other things. Like, it's not necessarily a trope that I enjoy myself. And, And by
2: now you all know the things Tim and I hate and we hate people that don't communicate well in movies. And, you know, it's like sometimes you got to sit through an argument or people falling apart and you're like, come on, if this were real, you know how you would talk to the person like, stop it. There's that kind of stuff.
3: So I think, like we said, even at its worst, this series is still still pretty damn good. High 70s, low 80s for us from here. Um, I think a lot of people that I've talked to, the murmuring was one of their more favorite episodes than some of the others. But like we said all of them are so radically different that you can watch this entire thing, you could sit down with somebody else, and you could have a completely different list unless you're me and Mike.
2: If you're someone that loves prosthetic, practical monsters, there's two or three episodes of this series that you're just going to love. You're going to feel like you are watching an 80s heyday, a From Beyond, or a Creep Show or one of those. They pulled out all the stops on putting together you know, eight really great cinematographers, eight pretty damn good script writers. Yeah. And, and the majority of every actor is either top of their game or, or doing a really good serviceable job. No one stands out as like, what are you doing? Except Crispin Glover, but he's Crispin Glover. So that's the end of you that. You know
3: what you he,
1: hired? Yeah, <laughs> he
2: can do what he wants to do. Um, But yeah, I had a lot of fun with this. And I think, uh, I mean, the last the last like real deal uh like anthology that had big names that i can think of was showtime's masters of horror yeah which for me was a really really tough letdown i thought most of those were going to be awesome and there that is a mixed bag of like f's to a's and that's wrong like you should be able yeah. to call together like a a a more Middle of the road and positive, yeah. Then you know, but this kudos to to Guillermo and the entire crew, the cast and crew of this whole thing. I I was impressed
3: overall. Now the real question is to round this out: what do we rank these episodes? Yeah,
2: should we do this live or should we not? Use we, we can do
3: this at? live because I think we'll probably be in agreement with okay. this. Um, I think number one is a tie. Yep. That can go either way. <laughs> we
2: only did this on the Halloween episode, <laughs> but it's the truth. Coin toss.
3: Yeah. It, it, depending it, on how you're feeling, it could be one of two.
2: It's heads, it's the autopsy, and... Tails, it's the viewing. Exactly. I could watch both of those once a week. It would probably take me a month or two before I got tired of them. Yeah. They're both excellent. Yeah. So, uh, the
3: yeah. autopsy is just a, like an acting masterclass from F. Murray Abraham... And the viewing is just so like out of there, fantastical class. that it's just it's. I mean, really, it's the demo reel for. Please give him phantasm. Yeah.
2: Um. So I guess we'll call it one and two. We, we're not going to screw up our own mental states by trying to call <laughs> that one. We really kind of messed that up. When we tried to do the Halloween thing. We're like, well, the number one that is Myers, the number one that is not Myers. So number three. I felt rats. Graveyard rats. Okay, so once again, we haven't even done. Th- We're doing this right now, <laughs> so we both agree that graveyard rats is number three. It's yeah. so fun. It's a monster romp.
3: Yeah, and I think it's probably the one of the lesser in terms of plot line, but it's just so fun beginning to end that it's. I don't really need to have a a deep story on this one because. There's just so much fun stuff happening that it's this fun palette cleanser of here's a storyline and here's just some fun prosthetic action. And now we're going to get back into a bit more of a a plot based episode.
2: And it kind of has a a comforting 30s Hollywood vibe Mm -hmm. with just added gore and it's in color, but it's like subdued color. So it has like an old timey feel. Um, So that's our third favorite. I feel like number four would be sort of a toss up. We're going to, we're going to hash it out right now. Is it Pikmin's model or is it the lotion? Like, because, because <laughs> that's where I, is that where you that's are? That's
3: exactly where I was going with that. They're,
2: they're totally so different that I'm having a hard time. I think it's, it's weird. Cause I think, I think I'm edging it to Pickman's. Like,
3: just, but, but yes. I, also, I can't do it. I can't decide. I think the, Overall, I think the outside is a a better episode beginning to end because the mm. entire time I was like, I don't know where this is going. It doesn't exactly. waver from where, and it I'm is. interested. But the ending of Pickman's is Pikmin's model, I think the last like two minutes of Pikmin's model, it, it, edges it edges it out. out. Although yeah. the very ending, like when they the last like minute of the outside, is somehow it's so, so unsettling unhaunted- yeah. Yeah. that it.
2: We're allowed to do exactly what we did with the top one. So, so yeah, we're going to call four and five interchangeable. Yeah. So we're giving you, like, there's still, these are all up in the top. So, yeah, one day, I think on Mondays, it's going to be the outside. And on Tuesdays, it'll be Pikmin's model. Yeah. And then we'll just repeat that in our heads for the rest of the days of the week. <laughs> they're equal. They're equal but different.
3: So. So now this spot becomes tough yeah the rest of these none of them really blew me away to the point where i would say put lot 36 above dreams or put dreams above lot 36
2: now we're having a toss-up on something that we think is the lower end
3: it's a race to the bottom yeah (laughs) um
2: i actually this is so weird i think i would watch lot before witch house again because I really like Tim Blake Nelson's performance. Yeah. I like, I don't mind. I like the banter between him and the dude. I think the female character, the wronged woman, it's half-baked and it's forced. I don't like that part, but the creature in it's really cool. Yeah. And I, I kind of find Witch House to be tedious. Witch house? But I also like the the ratty creature. Yeah, element. the
3: the rat creature yeah. and the witch herself are so interesting in that but i agree as far so as like tied for six plot, and line, seven. <laughs> plot line wise i'm just kind of like yeah sure like i'm more interested in dreams of the witch house of just like show me the next weird thing than i am about where is this going where's lot 36 i was kind of interested in like okay show me yeah. where this ends
2: if we thought this through ahead of time we could have mimicked the airing style and we could have given tim and i's Paired picks as they descend would have made it so much easier for us. Yeah. So just put the viewing of the autopsy is the ultimate double feature and work our way down. But that's okay. We're getting to the end. So yeah, that would leave us if we're staging those two towards the bottom. Then our final, our least favorite one was we, the murmuring. Yeah. And we covered it. We don't want to beat it up yeah. too bad. So it's like,
3: still good. It's still worth watching. It's, it's still, still worth 75. seeing the series. Yeah but it's I think 75. the murmuring is the one I'm least likely to just say like, you know, let me flip on the murmuring and just watch this again. I think it's a little too heavy emotionally yeah. for me to find enjoyment of it. Although I do appreciate it. And it messes with my
2: head being a big Guillermo fan and being so happy that he helmed this. Yeah. It would make me feel really good inside. If Guillermo wrote the autopsy, I'd be like, you see that yeah. he wrote this great story and he let this great director direct it. Um, but as it stands, I mean, come on. You, you cannot go wrong with eight short films. And almost all of them are awesome. Yeah. You know? And the one that isn't awesome is decent. And the two that aren't awesome are really good. And then the other ones are awesome. So yeah. that's a lot of awesome with a
3: little, little smattering of okay. So that brings us to the, the post-game uh, wrap-up of there's going to be spoilers for the next, like, five minutes. Oh, we um, are
2: doing this, huh?
3: Because I need to talk about the actual end of <laughs> Autopsy, the viewing, and Graveyard Rats.
2: So don't listen. I know there's some people that haven't seen these episodes, and you're going to listen because you're jerks and you don't care about spoilers when you haven't seen it. But don't listen. Turn the shit off now.
3: Still running. Stop it, please. For God's sake, please stop it. Yeah.
2: And then come back in, like, a couple minutes. Yeah, exactly. Watch a couple episodes and then come back.
4: Spoilers ahead.
3: So I love in the autopsy that there's... That shit blew my mind. There's so many things of the whole, like, alien or creature of, oh, there's all of a sudden, like, a very dark twist, like, life with Jake Gyllenhaal of, like, there's that dark twist ending of, like, oh, they didn't win at the end. Right, right that it's so refreshing for that to then subvert the subversion Mm -hmm. and be like... Mankind wins. Mankind wins. You outsmarted an alien. There's
2: so much that's great about it. And part of it was that for me, was that when you watch something um, like The Twilight Zone, it's like so classic. And the reason some of those I think are so classic are because Rod was a smart dude. And I think there were moments where he really wanted to present the good in mankind like we're not always these idiots we're not always bad and there was something so cool about f murray being like fuck you i'm human and being human's good yeah and just popping my eardrums slitting my throat he's so fucked up yep. and i felt so bad that he was dying of cancer to begin with that when this happened i'm like is he really gonna do all this then he traps that motherfucker in his synapses of his brain and i remember aaron being like that's what i want the inside of a brain to to look like because it was so cool (laughs) and and the way that arrogant alien is just like thinking he's got him and he's like you don't have me and he says something about um his time is uh is running quickly from his like from his his veins like he's bleeding to death the way he says, I can puppeteer your body or whatever. No, you can't. Yep. You can't. It was so good. And it works. You can go back and try to find the fault. And it's like, no, if I was an evil alien, I wouldn't be thinking of that. It's just not what I would think of.
3: Because I think it, it assumes the worst in humanity of you will do whatever you can to preserve mm-hmm. yourself and not you will destroy yourself for the good of everyone else yeah. out there. And it's such a good ending so good.
2: and i felt so bad for his friend i, I yeah. really did i was like bummed out i'm like these two dudes liked each other a lot they were good friends and yeah he already felt bad that that his one friend the one friend was dying like you could tell it upset him a lot and he was just like oh damn like i wish i knew like that yeah. kind of stuff um and he asked him how long he had and it was just like i would my day would be fucked up My my life would be screwed up if I walked in and you were lying on the ground like you like you ripped your own eyes out and you slit your throat like burn me yeah yeah oh that was like added to it it reminded me of Argento when uh, I think it's in Deep Red when when the girl's dying in the steamy bathroom oh and she writes on the wall it had that same feel that he wrote on his (laughs) chest but yeah man the autopsy it was like why was it so early on it should have been a little later I mean should have been the last
3: one. I would almost think... It would, it would be uplifting if it was the last one. Take the autopsy and the viewing and put those as bookends. That's true. Because then it would have been a case of you come in swinging off mm-hmm. that, and then it's okay, and you end on a high note. That's true. And then all the middle is just kind of like peaks yeah. everywhere.
2: How, how'd you feel about the effects in autopsy?
3: I liked it. Is I, cool it was cool shit.
2: squirmy. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they didn't go too far with... um. I feel like it was the right amount, but when he, like, there's some, I was saying about chipping your teeth, how everyone knows that. The idea of stabbing yourself in the eyes, it's just so fucked up. Like, no one should ever know what that feels like, and this poor guy had to know. Yeah. So, yeah, F. Murray Abraham bringing his A-game.
3: But Um, also, the viewing. (laughs) It's it's hard to even explain it. It's also so crazy but on a much different scale from autopsy situation of so much slime so much so much surrealistic
2: insanity
3: alien demonic thing that all of a sudden kind of resuscitates itself (laughs) and you think like oh where is this going and then it just goes zero to 100 and it's just Melt a person's face, melt a person's... It's like Raiders of the Lost Star. I was going to say, <laughs> dude, that I, haven't enjoyed,
2: I haven't seen a, a quality meltdown, like facial meltdown that sticks yeah. with me. I've seen other heads meltdown in other movies, but the Raiders meltdown is like indelibly imprinted on my brain. Yeah. And the look and the feel and the tactile quality, because you knew it was like practical effects, yeah. in the viewing, it'll stick with me. It was like a really cool, really cool and- ending. And it would
3: kind of really threw me for the loop because so often I would assume like the, like the character of uh, that uh, Sophia Butella played that it's like, okay, like Peter Weller will end up dying because of his hubris or something sure. and like she'll live. And it's no, everybody's for the most part, like gone, a couple people survive. Um, and it's just this unstoppable creature unleashed on this, kind of dystopian world because we don't see a lot of it, but it kind of ends with this thing just released out into the world. Yeah, it does. And it's, I want to see what the next hour is of this. I
2: don't see why the viewing couldn't be the first installment of like a, a two parter or a three parter. So that viewing, the second one could be called like unleashed or something like that. Um, and that would be taking it from there, which, because I didn't want that to end.
3: If this gets a season two, I would be very interested if he brings Thanos really cool. back. And it's, hey, um, can you just do part two? Yeah. And it's just a continuation of his story that every season. That would be season. super
2: cool. So other endings that blew your mind. Outside had quite an ending.
3: Outside was... It was heartbreaking... But also you kind of feel good for her that it's like, oh, you got what you wanted. But did she even
2: want that? though? Yeah, that's the
3: weird thing about that, because it's like she was striving so hard to be accepted when she already was Mm -hmm. because she has this own idea of perfection in her mind. And then it's so unsettling at the end when she finally gets it and it's all the women at work kind of fawning over her. And then she's just like laughing, but also looks like she's about to cry. Well, that's that staring yeah, into the camera. That's the
2: end end. That super end was like disturbingly weird. It, it almost like, stopped
3: looking at it. It gave me like the yeah. pearl ending. Yeah, yeah it did. It of totally just like did. her just like almost crying, laughing mm-hmm. into the camera as it just holds on her for like a minute.
2: I was pretty shocked that she killed her husband
3: yeah that, that sucked. was sucked i'm like that dude did not deserve to die i was on board with her at that point of like okay like she's crazy yeah. but like i just want to see things go he well lived for on her microwaved
2: food yeah it's like a hard enough existence you're gonna kill him with a fucking stabbed him right and it's like i think she stabs him in his head at first yeah it's like a hammer like she it, hits something. him with something right in his head and he's all like oh gee hon like, that's not good. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, he's like
3: aware. Like, ah, it's terrible. And she stitches them all up. Because, uh, yeah. And then she taxidermies them and <laughs> puts them like, on the couch. And it's where like. Where is it just to go from there? Yeah. It's like, at that point, you kind of cross over from, yeah, I really hope this works out for you to, ooh, yeah. He's a cop. Yeah. it's if like
2: anyone's going to come looking for someone, yeah. it's a
3: cop. So. So, yeah. It, it's, it's such an interesting episode. And the more I talk about it, the more I'm interested in rewatching it. Because it's just such a it's unsettling. weird <laughs> yeah. unsettling thing with everybody doing such a great job acting in that
2: yeah the lady thing was weird too it reminded me of you know there's a scene in annihilation yes where that weird anodized metal Coffee body version is copying her yeah that had that same feeling where like the stuff version of her yeah was like copying her yeah that was that was cool there's some good stuff in that other endings, I mean, shit, Graveyard Rats.
3: <laughs> graveyard Rats really gave me the um, Tales of the Dark Side. What's the Buster Poindexter?
2: Oh, yeah, the, uh, the cat, cat from one. Hell. The Cat from yeah, Hell.
3: Yeah, really gave yeah. me that kind of ending.
2: There's that. Yeah, in the, in the ending, there's definitely that, the very yeah. end. Um, But it also gave me Graveyard Shift vibes because they really just did like a, a well, I wouldn't even say much cooler because I really like the Rat Bat creature. Yeah. In graveyard shift, they did a more polished, more detailed, awesome,
3: uh, giant and rat. Then they kind of introduce the other concept of like, oh, it's running from these rats. Now yeah. I'm running from this giant rat that has to be their leader. And then he comes upon this other cavern. Yeah, and it's like this other <laughs> Lovecraftian shrine with uh-huh. this other creature. And now this like, well, not zombie. It's the I, uh, I the you know, living undead. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like this other thing comes after him and it's, I have no idea what world they're living in. It's
2: kind of like a subterranean house of horrors, which I'm totally down for. It's like, you could have other, you could tell, it's weird how you were talking about a second part of, of the viewing. You could tell like a story in the second season that you don't realize, like the payoff to that story would be that it was people that are that are excavating or, or they're putting in a tunnel for something. And it ends up being them breaking into this area for the first time. Yeah. And that's what the end it ties in that. That's like the, the discovery of this weird subterranean layer. And then the rats one uh, graveyard rats is just like a sequel. It, it's, it's another person being eaten and killed. Yeah. Like it's just cool. I love the idea of things eating corpses and
3: stealing corpses and doing shit like that. It's I mean, just really it's, creepy. It's the perfect period piece thing, because I feel like that was just yeah. a an ongoing concern of, like, rats in the graveyard.
2: It kind of mimics the they're creeping up on you ending. With oh, a, yeah. With a little definitely. interjection of, like, um, I got some, like, Serpent and Rainbow vibes, too. The Buried Alive. Yeah. It's just good. Graveyards are awesome. I never get tired of stories set in graveyards. It's always fun.
3: I much prefer the Graveyard Rats ending to the Dreams in the Witch House ending of you think they banish the witch and then all of a sudden the rat crawls in his mouth and bursts out of his chest and and takes over his body. Cool effect. Cool effect, but it's like, like we said during the episode, they try to play it off as almost like a darkly humorous tone of like, well, I've been narrating the whole time and I said that I lived, I lived in his body. (laughs) And it's like, I don't know, that just leaves a really weird taste in my mouth going out.
2: Yeah, I'm again. It's an uneven episode.
3: I somehow found that as a more depressing ending to me. Of like, oh, hey, man, you did it. You solved the problem, and then he still loses. Yeah. But I still keep referencing Pikmin's model oh, that ends on such a downer. Explain
2: that one, because it's a so, it's a dinner. It's it's a feast for the eyes.
3: Yeah, <laughs> you have them. Uh-huh, yes. Uh, so yeah, the whole thing of <laughs> so he, good he travels to the basement and he finds Pikmin and he ends up killing Pikmin over all of this stuff that's going on. And then all of a sudden he realizes that Pikmin's been drawing all these creatures that they're climbing out of this well. And they're, it's really cool. And it is cool. And then he burns the place down and he escapes and he runs back home to find his wife. And he's <laughs> there just in time to be like, Oh, like it's, I'm so glad I'm home. Like, I think it's over. And then she turns around and she's missing both of her eyes. And then he can't find where their son is. And it's because she beheaded him and <laughs> is so cooking good. his head. And just saying that is such a horrifying but ending. it's so
2: good. But it's so good. Like people need to go. People need to push the boundaries like that. more. I, that's what I think. I mean, that's. You know, I've seen so much push it. And obviously, if you always cut the heads off children all the time, you'd get desensitized. Like, oh. You know, yeah. Pickman's model did it. I'm glad they come up with unique ways, but that's a great ending. I it's was, a great. ending.
3: It's one of those things where it was not unexpected, but it was, they, <laughs> it would, actually they wouldn't do yeah. that. We, they wouldn't do that. They did that. And it just, I've seen a lot of stuff, but still thinking about that. I'm like, man, that's a dark oh, ending.
2: <laughs> super dark. <clears throat> and also for anyone that can't handle that because they have kids, stop it. Cause you have friends. And mothers and fathers, and those people get killed in movies. It's just a movie. Um, same goes for cats and dogs. I, yeah. lo- I love pets, but it's not real. It's just a movie. Because um, I know some people voiced to me personally. I, I, I wasn't down with that, you know, because like, I have kids. And I'm like, come on. like it, None of it happened. None of it. Stop looking, none looking of at it happened. paintings. Yeah, like stop. Don't look, at, yeah, don't look at Lovecraft paintings. You'll be all right. Um, <laughs> So yeah, that wraps it up, I think. I mean, the murmuring has, you know, there's no an ending real... that you can't really explain visually. Because it's yeah. not. It's just she finds I, happiness. I, I fucking ruined it earlier on. I I I couldn't help it. I was like, <laughs> I'm gonna talk about the murmuring, but there's nothing for me to say really other than yeah. there's the build up. Um but yeah, that's all eight, right? Do we we talked about well, it? Well, yeah, right? and
3: then lot thirty six, oh, I think. Yeah, it, we should talk about that. Lot thirty-six, like we said, it. Really gets going right before it ends of, okay, we find the, like the searching for the last book and we find this cavern that leads into this. And there is that creepy body.
2: Oh yeah. Like, and the whole thing with him in the, in the ring. Yeah. Too.
3: Like this body in this like uh, pentagram and he accidentally like walks over into it. He's and stupid. this creature bursts out of this skin and vaporizes this one dude and then hunts him down through all of these darkened hallways of the storage. It was really cool, but I was really expecting that to go into the third act. Yep. And that, that was the end. Like, that was, up, oh, chases him upstairs. We go down a couple hallways. He tries to get yeah. out. Oh, the other woman locked him in and won't let him back out. And all of a sudden, what, dead. What seems
2: like the beginning of the wow stuff is actually the wow stuff. It's yeah. stupid because I don't know, like they could have, when I try to think back, I should probably watch the episode again, but mm. I feel like you could have interjected the shit Tim just mentioned 20 minutes before the end. Yeah. And then maybe had um, a moment where like, there's no reason he couldn't have like out of desperation and maybe using his ingenuity. Cause he's not supposed to be a complete moron. Maybe he was able to like lock himself in one of the, the, the rooms in one of the storage rooms and force his way through the wall or something and ended up going into like the office. Yeah. And
3: then he got nailed. Like you could have made it like a little Lord. more extended with more excitement in it. He ends up hiding out in one of the storage rooms and then they end up cutting to the following day or like a week oh. later and there's another auction oh, and somebody he's dead. wins he's all and they open it and they have all three books in there in his corpse
2: tim just wrote a better ending off the cuff while talking that no that would be great they would have found him all just shriveled like yeah. liquefied and putrefied and dead so someone screamed like oh my god yeah hey it's all yours and then it's him. like
3: coming up next on TLC Storage Wars. <laughs> Wait, I'm. Tr- yep, is that it's freaking Dave Hester? So, yeah. So I I think lot thirty six I would have liked an extra like fifteen minutes to that one or like yeah. another ten minutes. But overall, like we said, we both had fun. We had a fun. lot of fun. I think everybody should go check the series out. I think it can definitely use the. The support, because I think getting a season two would be very cool to not only get more of Del Toro being able to show off a lot of this. But there's so many other great directors. Exactly. And I think especially him trying to give some opportunities to a lot of directors who may have done one or two kind of important works um, that got notoriety and kind of give them a little bit more, give a lot of female directors or minority directors or all of this. I think a season two would be very great to be able to continue that trend. Um, so. And also
2: it's cool that it can turn you on to other works from those directors. Exactly. Like if yeah. you watch the viewing and love the look and the feel, then seek out black rainbow and seek out uh Mandy yeah. because you're going to get more of that vibe um, for sure. And uh, yeah, I, I really am surprised that witch house was the director of twilight. It's just a weird one. They must have met each other somewhere.
4: Yeah. Well, <laughs> also,
2: it's,
3: it's such an odd thing because everybody else had a very specific style and tone of, oh, Panos Cosmatos, if I watch the viewing, I know exactly you know his him, other works. Yeah. And, oh, if I watch, like, um, Pickman's model, I know exactly where that came from. Mm-hmm. But hers, her filmography is kind of like, oh, Twilight, Lords of Dogtown, 13. Yeah. It's a little bit of all over the place of these um, different projects. That I think that's why Dreams of the Witch House doesn't necessarily have a a direct and hard voice to it mm-hmm. is because there really is no specific style and aesthetic that this yeah. director always hits. It's I would just, have loved to get see the job done.
2: Witch House directed by Ben Wheatley, who made Kill List. Oh, that would in be a field cool. Field in England. That is something where I think, man, that guy makes movies with no money and they're cool. Yeah, if he had that amount of money. The the budget for Witch House was probably more than his features that he's made. Oh yeah. Is my guess. And he probably could have done something. Yeah, not to shit on her. I mean, she did an alright job. It's not a bad oh, yeah. episode. There's other directors, and there's another season, I hope. So maybe he'll pull some of those new directors. Ty West would be perfect for one of these shorts. Actually, would be really interesting. You know, interesting. like I I think that'll happen. There's no way Del Toro didn't think X and Pearl were cool. He must have. Yeah. So so, yeah, that wraps it up. I mean, our double wrap up, because this is our little spoiler thing. Yeah. I'm glad we did that, though, because we got to to gush about some of these endings.
3: Oh, yeah. Like, it's. Yeah. I just needed to get that out in the world. Also, for anybody listening that's just, they watched it and they didn't have anybody else to talk to about it, and they just want to hear, like, oh, thank you. Somebody else loved the ending <laughs> to the autopsy. I hear you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So for anybody that wants to let us know what your favorite episodes were from this season, or if you didn't watch the series before this and you checked it out and just want to let us know that you dug it, how can we get reached? Mike? We can get reached in a
2: few various ways. We have our, our email, which we do check. So feel free to email us. Uh, and that is at don't open this podcast at gmail.com. And then we have our individual socials. You can find us on Instagram at Mr. Time for Tim at Falsigno art for me. Or if you want to reach us both, you can go to, uh, at don't open this podcast on Instagram. We have a Twitter. We don't
3: know how much longer since Elon <laughs> is screwing shit up. It's kind of a it's... weird situation over at Twitter right now. <laughs> um, it will be there to shut the lights off on the way out, I guess. But Don't open this pod. It's at yes. don't open this pod. Or for a lot of people, I know a lot of the horror community right now is moving over to alternatives, uh, one of them being Hive. Um, so we actually have a Hive as well, which is also at don't open this pod.
2: That's exciting. Um, we usually leave you with a quote of the week, which we'll still leave you, but I'll also let you know so maybe you'll get a little more excited winter's rolling in and the feedback we got on our fall fright guide was huge. And we always intended to do another fright guide. So keep an ear out for the Yuletide fright guide. We'll be covering the same amount of movies with a whole bunch of fun, little extras. Uh, Kristen Plouffe will most likely be back with some facts uh, that all of you (laughs) need to know about the winter. And to tie in with that, Keep an eye on our Instagram. You should go follow us there if you don't already. Uh, We're going to be offering a holiday don't open this podcast candle uh, named after the seminal favorite Black Christmas. And we've got some stickers that are going to be posted on there as well as some shirts. So merch is going to be up in time for the holidays.
4: And now your quote for the week.
0: You don't have to go under the knife to achieve perfection. Just use Arlo Glow. It's that glow. Transform yourself from ugly duckling to stunning swan for just $199.99. Call the number on your screen now. Get that glow. Arlo Glow is the only skincare product that transforms your body, mind, and soul. To place an order, call now. Glow's groundbreaking patented six-ingredient formula taps into the genius of nature's finest and most luxurious resources diamonds gold and caviar harnessing the power of retinol and peptides that work deep within the dermal layer promoting new skin fresh cells and cell production Alloglow literally tells your body to make a new you Let it work its magic. Side effects may include lots of appetite, vomiting, headache, nausea, diarrhea, dizziness, and drowsiness. Migraines are common in women ages 65 and up. If skin irritation appears, blood in the stool, and/or urine is visible, please discontinue use and consult your physician immediately. Call the number on your screen now. Supplies are limited.
2: We appreciate. All of your comments, all of your ideas, any of your corrections,
3: any of that
1: stuff. We're open to all of it. Yeah. So,
3: so thanks again for joining. This is been Don't Open This Podcast. Have a nice evening.
1: Stop it!